once again to America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka with Akhil Amar. We're now a couple of weeks into the publication of The Words That Made Us, and it's uh, gratifying to see the overwhelmingly positive critical reception as the reviews roll out. Uh, at this point, it's been reviewed very favorably in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, Law and Liberty, Library Journal, and uh, today, the Christian Science Monitor named it one of the 10 best books of May. This is as we're taping in May. We're going to have an episode of our podcast soon when we discuss some of the substantive points in the reviews, and that should be fun, as you might imagine. Uh, America's Constitution is sponsored once again by Everscholar. We don't take a lot of time on the podcast to talk about Everscholar, but now with the world opening up again, if you have the travel bug and the learning bug, like Akil and I do, you might consider grabbing one of the last couple of spots on Everscholar's amazing course in Greece this August, with two professors of classics teaching you every day in seminar, that's no lectures, uh, and readings precisely calibrated to make the sites that you'll visit uh, come to life in a way I guarantee you will be entirely new to you, even if you've been to Greece many times. That's everscholar.org for more information. You know, if you enjoy this podcast, that you're a thinking individual with perhaps a, a bit of whimsy about you. That's an Everscholar. Well, today is another exciting day for our podcast because we are graced, and that's the word, because this gentleman embodies grace uh, by a giant in the constitutional world, uh, Floyd Abrams. A little about Floyd before we begin our conversation. Floyd is senior counsel at Cahill, Gordon, and Rindell. He's best known, of course, for his many cases involving the First Amendment. Uh, I love this quote from the First Amendment Center website. Quote, ask someone to name a First Amendment lawyer. If they answer, 100% of the time, the answer will be the same, Floyd Abrams. Then ask them to name another such lawyer. The answer will be silence. It's a sign of the times that the name Floyd Abrams is synonymous with the First Amendment in a way that virtually no other name is, unquote. Floyd received his JD from the Yale Law School, and now, years later, Yale Law School is the home for the Floyd Abrams Institute for Freedom of Expression, whose mission is to promote free speech, scholarship, and law reform on emerging questions uh, concerning traditional and new media. It includes one of the most active and successful law school clinics for related cases. For 15 years, Floyd was the William J. Brennan Jr. Visiting Professor of First Amendment Law at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. He's also been a visiting lecturer at the Yale Law School, at Columbia Law School, is the author, author of several books. He's a frequent guest on many television and other media programs, and even podcasts. He's won innumerable awards and honors, including election to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Brennan Award, the Learned Hand Award from the American Jewish Committee, the Cronkite Award, and the Yale Law School Award of Merit, among many others. So welcome to America's Constitution, Floyd Abrams. Good afternoon. Thank you. So, um, you know, today as we, as we uh, are taping this, uh, President Biden is uh, preparing to give what amounts to a State of the Union address tonight. 
um, at which time he'll presumably cover a range of, of matters. And you are, are perhaps you know, our greatest expert on the, on the First Amendment with its several clauses and subjects. So perhaps you could give us a, uh, what is the state of the First Amendment? Um, in a class I recently taught at Columbia Law School, I described it as triumphant. Uh, I, I was responding to a really interesting law review article by Tim Wu, which argued that the First Amendment was obsolete, or at least raised that question. And you know, my reaction was one of taking account of all the things that did not happen, even under the presidency of uh, someone who was more hostile to the press uh, than than any, uh, certainly in my lifetime. I mean, no requests for prior restraints, no new statutes proposed, no executive orders with one possible exception, which which bore directly uh, on uh, on First Amendment rights. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that that we have and and no effort, uh, at least on the executive level, uh, to to try to reverse New York Times against Sullivan or other. Uh, judicial opinions, uh, which have afforded enormous protection to the First Amendment of a sort that is quite literally uh, unknown and and unaccepted uh, in other uh, liberal democratic uh, nations. So I start out uh, that way, not not uh, as a way of celebrating, but 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 observing uh, that that the First Amendment protections against government uh, interference with a close oversight of limitations on uh, what uh, speakers and what uh, journalists and the like can say uh, has remained in effect, uh, is very broad, uh, and does distinguish us from uh, literally uh, every other democratic country uh, on earth. There are some that say that the First Amendment is being weaponized on the part of, let's say, the right, um, particularly the religious freedom uh, aspects of the of the First Amendment. Um, I think Akil has some thoughts on that. Oh, well, I was just going to invite you to um, uh, talk a bit, if you have views. I, I know you especially focus on freedom of speech and of the press, but I invite you to talk about the Supreme Court's um, uh, uh, interest in perhaps rethinking the scope of the free exercise of religion, uh, another yeah. important part of the First Amendment, and and your your take on that. Uh, I'm I'm concerned about uh, the uh, the manner <clears throat> in which uh, the uh, new uh, conservative uh, majority, uh, ever greater majority. Uh, seems to be looking at such issues. Uh, the ones that have interested me most are ones arising out of the pandemic, where where the where the court has seemed to me uh, to go overboard uh, in basically saying that uh, if there is any entity at all that is allowed to uh, have a certain number of people at a certain place religious institutions uh, or people involved in the exercise of religion 
must have it uh, as well. You know, so, it's, so, we, so we wind up with uh, New York City and lots of other places in the country uh, being told that uh, they're not allowed to make a medical-like, scientifically rooted-like decision that uh, uh, when people go in and out of a supermarket, uh, they move in and out, and therefore there can be more room for more people to allow into a supermarket than into a church or a, or a synagogue where people tend to sit and stay for a, a particular uh, amount of time. Uh, those decisions which initially were going the other way uh, and, and which initially deferred to state judgments about how to deal with the disease and uh, which entities or institutions were more likely to be ones in which the disease could easily spread. All, all of that uh, has, has gone, uh, has been rejected uh, by the new majority of the court uh, based on what I view as, as uh, an over-reading, an, an A2 broad and, to me, unpersuasive reading of the free exercise clause. So it would seem that, that, that uh, it's not just a matter of treating religious institutions equally, but rather whether or not there's any impact on the exercise of religion um, that the court is, is finding uh, prohibition. I, I think that's right. Or another way to say it is that uh, religious institutions are being favored, not being treated equally. And so this would seem to have some kind of possible ideological agenda behind it um, in terms of things that might, might occur going forward. You know, so we... I, I think that's, that's something which is uh, really qu quite predictable uh, with, with this court, uh, which, which I think, uh, you know, focusing on a majority of the court, uh, which I think uh, feels, not just thinks, but feels that that religion has been uh, undervalued, underprotected, uh, disdained uh, by the too moderate, liberal, or whatever you want to call it, uh, the Supreme Court treatments of it uh, in quite recent history. I think the word disdain is is re is a, a, a good one because uh, I was I read like in Justice Justice Gorsuch's uh, comments, you know, a feeling that he had disdain for uh, for Hollywood and and such that he made frequent yeah. references to um, that that you could have a Hollywood singer but you couldn't have a cantor or something like that. Um, yeah, so. a Hollywood singer. You could have a casino. You know, you you could. Uh, but but when it came down to addressing, well, you know, I mean, isn't a theater uh, uh, different in some ways, or isn't a supermarket different in some ways in terms of assessing risk? Uh, but the risk that that this court is addressing, uh, and 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 again, I, I have to use the word feeling, emoting about is what they view as the, as, as the risk of uh, undervaluing and underprotecting 
uh, religious freedom. So that's an area of the, of the to, to watch out for, certainly. As yeah. Now, maybe switching gears just a bit, um, uh, some justices have worried about possible overprotection of um, freedom of the press. Um, in particular, Justice Thomas has um, uh, raised some concerns about the breadth of protection offered under the doctrines associated with the New York Times versus. Sullivan case um, earlier, you actually said the state of the uh, union, the state of the First Amendment was very strong, and and you actually carefully um, uh, uh, limited uh, your, your your claim to um, uh, the Trump administration's um, uh, failure to to directly try to undermine um, uh, New York Times versus Sullivan. Is there a concern that you have about possible? Um, a judicial erosion of that, and, and maybe you can just talk more generally about what New York Times versus Sullivan means to you. And of course, our audience should know that you've had a long-standing uh, relationship with the New York Times. You've represented them in some very important um, uh, First Amendment cases over the years. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I mean, I, I do think that. Uh, uh, while that is highly likely that New York Times versus Sullivan is likely to remain more or less uh, as it is, I mean, I, I mean, a case which again does provide more protection for free speech and free press than, than exists uh, elsewhere in the world, uh, and, and as to which you know one may say it is therefore possible to live in a democratic society that provides less protection for the press and for speech uh, than, than our country does. Our friends in Canada do just that. <laughs> but, uh, but that said, uh, my own view uh, is that uh, uh, if you look around the world at other democratic countries, uh, like England, I mean, you, you do see um, a situation where there there is, uh, and perhaps surprisingly, significantly less protection for a speech, certainly in the libel area, but, but even beyond that, than here. And it has on-the-ground impact. I mean, uh, uh, Liberace went around bringing libel suits and threatening them for English newspapers that had suggested he was gay. Uh, and he picked up a good deal of money uh, in settlements from that. Uh, Lance Armstrong, you know, our, our great bicyclist, but who was taking drugs, got a lot of money in settlements in England uh, from newspapers that were afraid to go to court uh, to because they couldn't prove it. And uh, I mean, the, the, the core protection of New York Times against Sullivan is that when you talk about public people uh, of, of one sort or another, uh, that, that you can't be held liable for what you say unless you either knew or suspected what you were saying was false. So they had a case in England of, of great note of an American author who wrote a book about the funding of terrorism. Her name's Rachel Ehrenfeld. Uh, uh, she named a Saudi billionaire as someone that had been engaged in the funding 
of terrorist activities. She has support from congressional testimony, from statements of the Federal Reserve Board, from statements of the Department of State. In England, that's no defense at all. I mean, it's what we lawyers call hearsay. Somebody said this. But if the legal test is not one which forces you to prove the truth of what you say, but which, A, requires the party suing to demonstrate falsity, and B, doesn't allow a judgment when a public person is involved, uh, unless the speech was uh, voiced with uh, knowledge of falsity or serious doubts about truth or falsity. If that's the law, well, then of course she would have won. She would have won on summary judgment or a motion to dismiss in, in America because she had such support, at least for the proposition, that she believed it because these things had been said by such reputable sources. The final effect of that was uh, such uh, outrage uh, here at her being held liable there uh, that the Congress unanimously in the Senate and the House passed the Speech Act signed by President Obama, which basically said that we will not enforce foreign judgments uh, from countries which do not have the equivalent of First Amendment protection, which is to say, uh, no country, uh, un unless the same result would have been reached here. And you think of it, that's an extraordinary thing to do, let alone the, the unanimity being extraordinary. Well, I think and, it re uh, reflects a consensus um, uh, on the part of the American people um, about their attitude towards libel and the First Amendment and so forth. I think so. I think so. Uh, 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 and, and, and again, I mean, the cases come and go, and there are some good cases and bad cases. And when I think of New York Times versus Sullivan, you know, I was never persuaded that it was essential that movie stars or baseball players uh, be treated as public figures in the sense that, 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 that this enormous amount of extra protection uh, is, is afforded. Uh, I mean, it does make the law clearer to, to treat this on a sort of over the, the entire spectrum of people we would call public people. But, uh, look, I get it when people say, you know, why, why should they uh, get uh, the, this added level of protection? It's not the same as denouncing President Biden or, or something like that. And, and you know, that's, that's something that I could listen to someday if I were on a court. So it sounds like then you're, try you're saying that for you there's a, a differentiation here between political speech and speech about public figures who are not political figures. Or, or uh, yeah, or I'd say people, people in power. I mean, the head of a big company, uh, whether or not the speech is political, uh, the head of the largest union in the country. I mean, they, they're, they're, they, they have the sort of power uh, and what they say matters uh, for, for good or evil. It matters what they think and what they say. Uh, I, I mean, I haven't quite gotten there yet, but at least I, I could get, I, I could fathom saying that, that simply because someone is 
well-known might not be sufficient basis for affording this enormous extra level and layer of protection that New York Times versus Sullivan offers. And, of course, the protection is for people criticizing them, not so much for, for them, but, for, yes. but for, the, for, their, for their critics. Okay, so, so that's Floyd Abrams on a landmark case, New York Times versus Sullivan, and it's, it's, um, it's central um, uh, holding and, um, and boundaries. Um, uh, so much ground to cover, um, and, uh, but, but I, I can't um, not mention at least one other one that I'd love to get your your take on. Um, in a previous uh, uh, podcast episode, we actually got Nadine Strassen, our mutual friend's take on this. And I think this is a case where you and I and Nadine, maybe Kathleen Sullivan, um, are um, on one side and many of our liberal friends are on a, another side. Um, and that's the case of Citizens United. So um, uh, hope you can tell our audience. I, I, I'm with you basically on this. So um, and and so is Nadine. But but um, uh, when you go out into the world, you say, "Oh, Citizens United, love it, absolutely easy, um, um, uh, uh, correctly decided. Obviously, not just correctly decided, but obviously on the facts of the case." Um, them's fighting words, as I'm sure you know, and and then I've experienced this too. So Flo- go for it, Floyd. Well, I, I, I certainly have experienced it, uh, and, and what uh, what adds to it is, is, is if I'm introduced by saying, and he represented Senator Mitch McConnell in that case. <laughs> really wearing the black hat. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, you know, that, that case was, was n- never that, that hard for me, and, and that is to say... You know, maybe because really so much of the work I had done by then or by now uh, in this area has been representing large corporations that happen to own newspapers, broadcasters, or the like, mm-hmm. that, that, that the notion that large companies were involved uh, has become uh, something that I'm so used to de- defending uh, uh, focusing on what they say, yeah, what just, they do. Yeah, just on, on that, Philip, sorry to interrupt, but just um, what we, we were just talking about, New York Times versus Sullivan. Of course, that's New York Times, you know, corporation, you know, Inc. That's, that's, a, that's a corporation. And, of course, you have to protect the New York Times' ability to criticize government officials, right? Okay, so, so you're saying, well, if you start with that, that, that the fact that New York Times was a corporation doesn't somehow uh, take it out of First Amendment land, then, you know, what's so different when we're talking about an ad as opposed to an op-ed or a news piece, right? I, I, I agree, indeed. Very often an ad uh, is by people or entities that don't own a means of communication. And, and at least when they speak on public matters, you know, or having their say for their interest, to be sure, uh, but but uh, having their say, often responding right. to what's, something what, that been in the press. What's the difference? Most, what's the difference? Um, Andy and I were talking about how they're, I guess, going to change the um, the name of um, uh, a certain. Uh, 
pieces that, that, that appear in the New York Times. They're no longer going to be called op-eds, yeah, uh, but guest essays, because they used to be opposite the editorial page. But, yeah. but what's the difference between um, an, uh, an editorial by the New York Times? Oh, that's clearly protected. Oh, but if a company buys an ad on the opposite page, you know, making an yeah. argument, oh, that, that's, that's not protected somehow. The ad isn't protected but the, because they don't own the media. They're just, you know, as it were, renting it or just uh, uh, in, in an ad. Yeah. Um, but, but if you own the media, well, of course you can do it, but if you're just renting it in your corporation, oh, that's totally different. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, think of the facts of Citizens United. I mean, this is political speech. A conservative group makes a documentary denouncing Hillary Clinton when she was the presumptive Democratic nominee for president uh, in, in 2008. And they want, they want to put it on television on a sort of a, a, a pay-for-view-like relationship. Uh, and because they're they're funded by corporations, in part even, conservative-oriented corporations that wanted to have their say denouncing the, the then likely Democratic candidate for president. Uh, suddenly we're talking about bringing the law in and people at risk uh, of going to jail or being fined for engaging in, in political speech. And, and we and, and we ne- and we never do that, would we, if it were a book, or a magazine, right. or a newspaper? So what's the big difference that um, it's yeah. a, um, a broadcast, especially now that uh, even the, the, the very distinction between print media and broadcast media in a kind of internet world seems sort of a little hard to maintain. Just as the distinction Absolutely. between a media corporation and a non-media corporation, or for that matter, between a wealthy individual and a corporation that was created to um, put forth an ideological message. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 indeed, I mean, we we know the numbers uh, of who's giving money. I mean, where the big bucks come from, and by far they come from wealthy individuals, much more than corporations. Indeed, unions have given more money uh, to uh, campaigns and candidates than than corporations. Which, which often view it just as a bother to keep politicians off their back. Uh, um, but uh, but I mean I, I couldn't agree with you more, Gil. That, that that I mean the, the 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 reaction to my friends, my my political friends, my personal friends, uh, sort of how could you? Uh, is, is, <laughs> one I've, I've just never, never accepted. Now, here's why I may lose you, Floyd, because, you know, so far you and I uh, may be as one. Um, uh, uh, now, I do sharply differentiate between um, ads, on the one hand, which I think are uh, really pure speech. They're appeals to um, the citizenry, the voters and, and, and others. And, and if people aren't persuaded, then um, the ad has no effect. Um, and uh, so I think the ads are clean um, and, 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 and strongly protected. I see campaign contribution, and that, that's whether the ad is, is from a media organization or not, whether the ad is from an individual um, or um, a, a corporation 
um, rich or poor, um, ads are clean. And if people, and if they're unpersuasive, um, people won't um, uh, be persuaded. And, uh, and, uh, and, and the people decide that one by one by one, and only real, real people, not corporations, vote on election day. But um, I think campaign contributions are very different, and um, uh, they, they, they can't be regulated out of existence, but I think there should be a permissible regulation of that because they can become um, almost bribes to the candidates because a campaign contribution can, as a practical matter, be laundered sometimes and used for the personal use of the candidate by you know, paying a salary to um, uh, a brother or a brother-in-law or um, using it to pay personal expenses and all the rest. And, and so that seems much more like bribing the candidates to me or at least raising that concern than just running an ad trying to persuade voters. Um, uh, what's your take on that? Well, uh, my, my first reaction is that uh, all of your examples... Uh, make, make me think of something just a little bit d- d- different than than your reaction. My first reaction is we need more disclosure, mm-hmm. uh, 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 and, and I'm very very uh, strong in favor of more disclosure. And indeed, I fear that uh, the argument the Supreme Court heard uh, earlier this week, uh, which dealt with disclosure of charitable organizations of their major donors could result uh, uh, with with a new the new conservative a majority uh, conservative plus you could say a conservative ultra uh, majority on the court now that it, that it could result uh, uh, in in even less disclosure on on the political front you know who's getting the money how much money even where does the money go? I mean, things like that, I think, ought to be uh, uh, public, much more public than they are. Even, uh, even, but, but not on the ad side. Um, shouldn't there be a right to just run an anonymous ad or say, you know, uh, brought to you by Publius or something like that? On the ad side, I wouldn't want actually some strong disclosure idea. Look, my reaction is, is that it's not because it's an it's an ad mm-hmm. that 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 would lead or should lead to more or 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 less disclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, we, I mean we do have a history of of protecting anonymity in, in a wide range of of areas, but but on a rather general level, I, I agree with what Justice Scalia said that uh, you know people. People ought to be brave. People ought to, ought, to, ought to come forward and, in general, be prepared to express their views and say who they are. Now, we have situations of, you know, the NAACP case in Mississippi, where Mississippi wanted the names of all members of the NAACP in order to purge them, or maybe even do worse. Uh, I mean, th- there are situations in which disclosure goes over the line. Um, but, but it does seem to me that, that where very large amounts of money are spent to influence public opinion, that there is a First Amendment interest in knowing 
who's really speaking. You know, so, I, I've actually taken the position that this should apply when you're talking about foreign nationals or foreign uh, entities, mm-hmm. that th- then that should be required to be to have disclosure. Um, so, for example, we'd want to know to what degree Russia, you know, might be running yeah. Facebook ads. But um, on American citizens, I think, you know, obviously Akil is making a point by using the example of, of Publius, you know, that the Federalist itself was quasi-anonymous, not really, but in, but in the... Rev- yeah, really. I mean, the people didn't know who Publius was when um, those... Uh, 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 and in, in fact, Publius didn't out himself until much later. In well, general. they certainly didn't know which was written by which. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms but but of only a few insiders actually mm-hmm. really knew it was Madison, Jay, and, and Hamilton. Um, they, they were, there was a lot of speculation and stuff, mm-hmm. but... but um, um, and not, and, and, you know, and not, there was a tradition during the revolutionary period of, yeah. of the friend of the farmer and you know, yeah. et cetera. Just um, lo- um, so yeah, uh, all well, sorts of anonymous. I mean, look, all of us have, have our own. Uh, uh, I don't want to say hypotheticals, but, but examples where we're depending on the facts. You know, we might go different ways. I mean, there, there was an, an electronic billboard up in the earlier Obama days uh, denouncing. Uh, the Affordable Care Act in mm-hmm. Central and Grand Central Station, mm-hmm. lights on, lights off, from the Heritage Foundation, and their name was on it on the bottom. Mm-hmm. But no one knows what the Heritage Foundation mm-hmm. is or was. No, no one knows how much money that ad cost. You know, no one knew that it was part of an effort. Uh, I mean, some people guessed this successfully, but it was part of a concerted effort to by by you know people with with certain strongly held views and companies uh, to, to take down mm-hmm. um, more public health care for, for, for the public. And, and it's situations like that which makes me lean more mm-hmm. in the direction of more disclosure rather than less. You know, I, I know that one of the, the highlights in your career was the, the Pentagon Papers case. Um, do you have any reaction to the uh, recent disclosures uh, by uh, Neil Sheehan? Well, yeah, I, I mean, it is, it's, it's interesting <laughs> to learn uh, that there was a, a level of deception by uh, the New York Times reporter, who was the, the, the lead journalist uh, with respect to the Pentagon Papers, uh, in terms of what, what he had promised to Daniel Ellsberg, in terms of what he was going to do and what he wasn't going to do. Uh, um, uh, I mean, that's, that's interesting uh, uh, to me, and not just because I had uh, a later on involvement uh, in, in, in the case itself. Um, I, I, I'm also sort of struck by the fact that Ellsberg's position was he did the right thing. Mm-hmm. No, that, that, yes. that uh, you know, I, I don't mind. Uh, uh, I wanted to make sure it got out. Uh, right. uh, but, but uh, uh, I mean, if, if anybody is thinking of what, passing, passing judgment on people who promise one thing and don't do it, uh, I get it. You know, we, we actually, uh, Akil and I have been, 
had the pleasure of actually auditing a course where, that Bob Woodward has been offering on journalism at Yale uh, to, to a small group. And um, we, ha- we were discussing the Joe McGinnis uh, situation, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is, which is you know, a little reminiscent of yeah. this, where, where you have these, these false promises being made by, by journalists uh, and, and so forth. Um, do you remember that case? Very well, very well, and uh, fascinating, fascinating uh, situation. With the first line of the, of, of the of the case brought against the journalist was, "This is a case about a false friend," mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, yeah, so uh, you know, I, I look. Uh, I, I don't find attractive some things some journalists do. Um, and, and there are situations uh, as well in which journalists are very close to or sometimes even over the line in persuading, uh, inducing, uh, participating with uh, individuals uh, in positions of authority with respect to defense policy, military policy, and the like, of uh, providing uh, information, uh, which uh, is, is properly highly classified. Yes, and actually, uh, Bob Wilber discussed that as well, so it's quite interesting. So changing, uh, changing directions here a little bit, you've, you've argued a number of cases, I think it's 13 before the Supreme Court. What's it like to argue before the Supreme Court? Well, the, uh, well, one example I've, I've thought of in terms of how to explain it, it's like uh, batting in the last of the ninth with the bases loaded. It's one against nine. I mean, the, the batter has no one really on his side. I mean, the guys are in the dugout. Uh, he's alone and confronted with nine individuals some of whom are overtly hostile. <laughs> we really want to do things to you, and and others who can embarrass you. Uh, it's I mean it's it's a fraught situation on a personal level, you know, because of course if you ever make some serious mistake, uh, at least you ought to be criticizing yourself uh, for the rest of your life. Uh, but but uh, more likely. You'll be the subject of criticism uh, uh, or, you know, a, a bad judgment passed by others, including members of the court who might be on your side. Uh, but look, all that said, uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity um, and uh, uh, one in which, you know, one of the things I've always come to think is that it is inexcusable for the lawyer not to know more about the case than the, than the justice does. Mm-hmm. It's your case. You've worked on it. You've studied it. You know the reality behind the printed page, et cetera. And yet, you know, sometimes you just, you just won't be prepared, even if, you, even if you're pretty good at what you do. I remember an argument, one of the first arguments I had was for a newspaper that had uh, written certain things uh, about uh, a confidential 
the judicial fitness panel, which is passing judgments on whether a judge in the juvenile court ought to be permitted to continue to, to serve on the court, supposed to be confidential uh, until there's a recommendation of proceeding against the judge. And the information leaked and the newspaper had published the name of the judge. It was one of my first arguments and I, I was really prepared. And then Justice Rehnquist, before he was Chief Justice, asked me, does it make any difference that a corporation is involved here? And, and I, I, I remember thinking at the time, my God, my God, you know, how did, how did I not think of that one? Because he had a case on his docket involving commercials, involving speech of a corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the answer I gave, I, I thought then and now was fine, which is a New York Times versus Sullivan also involved a newspaper, and you certainly didn't provide less protection because it, it was in the corporate form. That's a fine answer. But my point is that, that I was quite correctly self-critical that it had not occurred to me that beyond the facts of my cases, beyond issues of when can truth-telling be punished, beyond all of that, I could be asked a question, you know, half a mile away, but, but still one I should have been ready for at that time when, when the law was less clear uh, about the free speech rights of corporations. Well, I'd have to believe that at that at that point, you know, there's different types of preparation. You, know, you can prepare for a specific question, right? And then right. you could, but you can also just familiarize yourself with every detail of the case and and all the legal theory and so forth. And you can draw upon that knowledge, you know, when you come when you come in contact with a question that you hadn't prepared for. I think it's it's analogous mm-hmm. to me. Uh, to the benefits of a liberal education versus a technical one. Mm-hmm. Yes, but indeed. You learn how to think, and then when it's time to think, you can do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and look, it wasn't an unfair question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it was just no one had asked it about my case yes. because, as you, as you rightly put it, it's a, it, it transcends the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it, uh, as you can tell, it's something I've never forgotten. <laughs> well, you know, it reminds me of that line from the movie Wall Street when uh, he uh, Charlie Sheen's about to go in and meet uh, Gordon Gecko, and he you know he's been trying to get this opportunity, and finally they let him in. And he says, "Well, life comes down to to four or five moments, and this is one of them." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, another thing I, I think of when you talk about appearing in in the court, uh, I, I, I did two capital punishment cases, um, and one of them was about the the Miranda case. Uh, had had the individual on death row in Parchment Prison in Mississippi uh, been given all the rights of having been warned properly. Uh, or not, and that was the focus. That was my focus in, in preparing. That's what. That's why the case was there. That's what they were interested in, and I thought it went well, and and we did win. But 15 minutes after the case, my phone rings, and it's a newspaper in Mississippi where all this occurred, and the the question was was this in the context of what the case was 
really about, which was whether a particular uh, defendant had killed a particular policeman. And the call that I got, the question from a local Mississippi newspaper was, uh, do you believe that your client uh, uh, did not shoot the policeman? Do you really believe that? Was the question. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of torn at, I, I torn at the moment, you know, shall I say, I was just arguing about the Miranda case. I didn't want to say that. Or I could say, uh, I'm not talking to the press about the case, which I, I thought would make the client look bad. And so I said, yes, I believe him. Which I think, I think I owed that to him. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure, I'm really not sure if that was consistent, you know, with the canons. Uh, I mean, maybe the only proper thing for me to do was not to answer uh, or ma- manage to, you know, kick, kick the question off. But I, I thought, and the truth is, I really do think that, that that's one of the things a lawyer owes a client in a circumstance like that, is, is that while it may be better not to answer, and obviously you, you can't say, I think he, he did shoot him, uh, that I thought what I, what I owed was a, a sort of loyalty which everyone would understand uh, was, was, was owed to him. I'm his lawyer. I, I, I just couldn't say, oh, I, I, I don't know about things like that. I, you know, I, I just deal with legal stuff. Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a physician and uh, retired physician now, but, uh, you know, I suppose that the doctor owes his, his duty to his patient, perhaps even more unequivocally than a, than a lawyer owes the duty to the client because you also have, you know, various... Uh, various, you know, you're an office of the court, you know, and so forth. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if I were to be asked, let's say, by an insurance company about whether the, a particular very expensive treatment was appropriate uh-huh. for my patient, I would, have a, mm-hmm. I would have an obligation to advocate for him, even though it might not be in the public health interest for everyone yes. that had this problem to, to have it paid for with this expensive yes. treatment or something like that. So I think that that's, a, that's analogous in that sense. Yeah. yeah. And of course, you know, we're talking about these oral arguments before the court. I wonder, what's your sense of how often the oral argument is actually decisive? I mean, do you feel that the, that, that, that argument, that decisions are mostly made on the papers or, uh, or on uh, the arguments that the justices have among themselves in conference? Or wh- how much do you think the oral, what kind of a, a role does oral argument, I mean, I'm sure it varies, but nevertheless. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think it is, it's mostly made on the papers. The, the, the judges and their clerks, you know, have, have read them, uh, usually c- come in with a with a, a pretty firm view of, of how they're going to come out and generally don't change but but you know that said there are there are cases where they where the argument matters because judges are genuinely uh, uh, undecided about the, uh, this or that I mean in the Pentagon papers case which I did not argue but but I worked with the, Professor Alexander Bickle of Yale, and representing the uh, the Times, I mean there there were national security issues there, 
Um, and, and uh, you know, again, the sort of issues arise uh, as to, uh, you know, potential harm uh, by doing this or doing that or speaking out or being silent. Uh, um, there, was, there was a very important moment in that case in which Justice Stewart asked uh, Professor Bickle, Suppose when we go back to our chambers and we read these uh, classified information about the war in Vietnam, we conclude that publication would result in the death of one American soldier unlucky enough to have been drafted and sent to Vietnam uh, and and, uh, now dead because of what the New York Times published. If I conclude that, he said... Are you telling me that there can't be a prior restraint on publication? And Professor Bickle did what what a good lawyer try to do sometimes, which is to escape the question. (laughs) The first answer was, I'm sure you're not going to find that Mm -hmm. when you get back to your chambers, which irritated Justice Stewart (laughs) predictably, you know. but the, the answer he finally gave was, well, I, su- I suppose, Your Honor, at that point, my dedication to human life would, would clash with my uh, devotion to the First Amendment. And then Stewart interrupted again, and, and yes, uh, and so. Uh, and then a prior restraint would be uh, uh, appropriate. Uh, Bill always thought, and I thought, that if he had answered any other way, we would have lost the case. That, that 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 answer to that question uh, to uh, one jurist and, may, and maybe two, the final vote was six to three in our favor, uh, uh, was what carried the day. Uh, I, I'd phrase it sort of negatively, you know, not because, uh, you know, the answer was so persuasive or this or that, but because the, the other answer would have reflected a sort of, we can do anything, we can publish anything. We don't care about the consequences of what happens from publication. And maybe a way that, that you cannot allow your, your client to be viewed. Mm-hmm. And, and he really did think, and I, I thought that a, a flat-out answer to the contrary would have, would have lost the case. The next day, the American Civil Liberties Union filed a brief in the Supreme Court denouncing the answer. Well, uh, it's which, interesting. Which, oh. you, you know, if you think of the of the uh, oral argument as this moment of high drama, one, one might say well, something like, uh, you know, uh, we've sworn an oath to defend the Constitution. That's what our soldiers go to war for. That's what he's actually fighting for, um, in a sense. Um, so we, one, oh one. yes, you could you could say that indeed. You could say what Justice Stewart finally wound up saying in writing his opinion, which is no prior restraints unless the publication quote would surely result in direct and immediate and irreparable harm to the nation or its people, which is an extraordinary legal test. Surely, surely result, um, um, but. But if the answer to his question had been that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, both of us at least would have been, you know, really concerned that that it it sounds uh, uh, oblivious to the 
the de- the death he's positing someone dying because yes. of the publication. Yes, sort of like the ticking bomb scenario uh, for torture. Yes. That's uh, these kinds of hard the cases bomb, like bad law. The, right, the kidnapped child case. You know, they're 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 always hypotheticals. Right. That that uh, you know, which are not crazy hypotheticals, but right. but which which test the the theory that you're offering a court. And I guess when you're in the Supreme Court, there's this, you know, the Supreme Court has such a high opinion of itself, it becomes harder to uh, resort to the technique of, of questioning the premise of the question, because the premise of the question is coming from the Supreme Court, you know, so it's... <laughs> yeah, 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 my answer to that is, yeah, you ought to try that one. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, I know we have to wrap up soon, but um, I think... Everyone would agree that, and you know, you you don't have to uh, respond to the statement, but that clearly you're a towering First Amendment figure, historic First Amendment figure. Um, so, if you accept the premise of my question, uh, then you know, who are some of the other great First Amendment figures over the centuries? Who do you look to as uh, you know, inspiration, role model, uh, hero? You know, in this in, in the past in American history. You know, you go back to uh, Jefferson, uh, uh, and uh, you know who who had written at a time when it looked as if there was not going to be a Bill of Rights. That he was astonished that that the public would be content uh, with with forming this new government and empowering this new federal government uh, with, without the clearest statement. Uh, that, that there were things the government could not do. I mean, think of it. That, that proposition was was laughed at by, by by some intelligent people at the time, basically saying, well, we have to make a list of all the things the government can't do. Or one writer at the time said, why don't we put something in about how it's nice when the sun is out? <laughs> And, and that people should go to the country and enjoy themselves. Um, but uh, so, so I guess I, I would start with Jefferson uh, and Madison as, as, as the drafts person. Uh, 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 I mean, I've, I've always been struck by the fact that Madison wanted to get in freedom of conscience and couldn't get it through mm-hmm. uh, as, as a part of the First Amendment. Um, uh, he also, you know, trusted the judiciary to be the protector of of freedom of speech. Um, so I would I would start with them. Then, of course, there are great great judicial heroes through the age, Brandeis and and Holmes. Uh, Holmes had to change his mind on some important things to get there. Eugenics. The learned hand. Uh, sorry? Eugenics, for example. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I don't know if he did change his mind on that. But, uh, but, but he, you know, he, he, he did change his mind on uh, whether the First Amendment only protects against prior restraints, injunctions on mm-hmm. speech, which is what he said in a famous 1907 opinion. Uh, um, and you know he changed his mind. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I admired more more recently, certainly uh, uh, Justice Kennedy, 
uh, admired him in a sense more because he came from a more conservative background uh, uh, than than you know one one might have thought would lead him to to be such a uh, a First Amendment champion. Um, and uh, but those are the names that that uh, spring to mind. So just to, to uh, a couple of just final questions here. Uh, this is not necessarily a First Amendment question, but you know, we've, we've been seeing some uh, flare-ups in the culture wars here in questions of cancel culture and uh, free speech on campus, diversity of opinion, uh, and so forth. Um, do you see a, a worrisome trend here of, uh, of suppression of speech? Um, in in these uh, areas that are usually yeah, areas yeah. of intellectual foment. No, I do. Uh, I mean, I I, I think that uh, you know when you look at polling data of uh, students entering colleges, they they're they've been sort of more more prepared to say that that it's it's important for people not to feel bad about what other people say, that it is to protect. The, the right of those other people to say it, um, uh, and uh, you know we we have we have wound up with genuine uh, problems on on campus, uh, problems of uh, professors uh, getting in trouble uh, over speech-related activities, e even reading portions of Supreme Court opinions, mm -hmm. which have language that we would not use anymore. Um, so, I mean, to that extent, it, 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 it is a, a continuing uh, battle with, with continuing uh, uh, challenges. Uh, one of the things that I, I think has been a, a very uh, uh, attractive uh, change in attitudes uh, in recent years is, is that uh, conservative jurists uh, have become far more uh, protective of First Amendment rights than would have been the case uh, when I was in law school or, or even a number of years after I was in law school, and not just in cases where, you know, the rights of corporations or the like were, were involved. I mean, you, you really have seen a, a, a coming together uh, on the Supreme Court of, of very significant protection uh, for uh, for for free speech in a way that I mean really would have been uh, unthinkable uh, not that many years ago and is unthinkable uh, in most of the democratic world. It's interesting that at the same time that we have this coherence on the Supreme Court, we have a divergence in uh, in Amer among the American people. And before the the roles were reversed, I think most people, uh, yeah. you know, in time time gone by, felt that. Uh, the marketplace of ideas was the right right idea that you fight a bad idea with a good idea, not by you know silencing it. Um, but now uh, that that is not necessarily the as you say the, uh, the right. ethos on campus, and I think that's uh, that's a challenge that we're going to have to face going forward. Right, right. Well, look, it's, it's been very good to talk to you, and I, I appreciate that. I really I appreciate the chance to do so, and uh, I I wish you and Anakil the best. Thank you very much. This is really, okay. really an honor.
Uh, th- thanks, Floyd, so much for, for being with us. Um, uh, really, pleasure. Okay.